Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Mark Abernathy is an Australian author well known for his suspense and thriller novels, featuring the Aussie super spy Alan McQueen. He has written four novels and two non-fiction books. His latest is Counter Attack, the third book in the Alan McQueen series. In 2007, Golden Serpent was published, introducing Alan McQueen. The sequel, Second Strike, was released in 2008. He has also published a book on the life and sudden death of businessman Michael McGurk. Based in Sydney, he has been a journalist, speechwriter and a senior editor at Australian Penthouse magazine. Mark, thanks for joining us today. No sweat. So tell us, what inspired you to come up with an Australian super spy? Well, I suppose... uh... There were two stages to it. The first stage was probably that my uh, entire original first burst of of reading when I was a child was Ian Fleming Mm -hmm. and then Alistair MacLean. So, uh, and for me, that started when I was uh, about nine years old and I read Dr. No for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so, and ever since then, I've been interested in thrillers in general, uh, and espionage thriller in particular. Uh, It was just a a basic interest of mine. And uh, then uh, then as an adult uh, and a journalist and a ghostwriter, I used to ghostwrite business books for people. Mm -hmm. And I was just heard to say one day, um, you know, why why are all our spy heroes in, in the thriller genre, why are they all British and American? And I just sort of said out loud this fateful thing. I said, somebody should write a story uh, about uh, an Australian super spy um, whose theatre of action is sort of more Southeast Asia mm. and the South Pacific. And, uh, you know, if it was done properly, that could be very entertaining. So the next thing I knew, I was starting off on writing this book called Golden Serpent, mm. just straight out of my brain, just, you know, just as, an, as, as a story, and, uh, you know, uh, it got picked up. So th- that's how it got inspired, really, to... Uh, I was interested in the genre, mm. and I, I couldn't understand why an, an Aussie spy hadn't been made into a fiction character. So do you, would you secretly want to be James Bond or Alan McQueen? I don't think so. <laughs> no. I'm, uh, you know, my level of danger, sort of uh, walking, walking from my writer's desk to the kettle to pour myself a cup of tea, that's about, um, <laughs> that's about as dangerous as I want to get it. Um, you know, uh, th- this, is a, this is a fictionalized person uh, based on uh, people I've met, people I've been introduced to, uh, research I've done 
and uh, it suits me that that somebody else is out there doing this stuff uh, rather than me. Mm-hmm. So now you also work as a journalist and have done for quite a while. When yeah. did you decide that you wanted to write as a journalist? And then was it difficult to, to transition to, to write an entire book? Yeah, well, there were, there's probably two transitions you're talking about there. Mm. The first, I was at university uh, trying to be a lawyer, and I'd already dropped out once, and then I was, I'd come back for a second time to do this law degree mm-hmm. uh, because my, you know, uh, my father's a lawyer and my sister's a lawyer and all of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and having come back for the second time, and I had to be honest with myself, I thought, I, I really, I'm just not interested in this. You know, it just doesn't interest me. What I, I realised what I really liked was all the art subjects I was doing. Mm. And in particular, the, the writing side of it, the essays, that's, that's what I was good at, was actually writing. And so my first transition was to, uh, was to apply for a journalism course. This is back in New Zealand in the old days. And the Polytechnics did, did the journalism courses. They were intensive half-year ones. And then you went off to work for a newspaper. It was, they were called induction courses. So I went and did that, and I was sort of probably a bit of a natural I really liked journalism. I was basically good at it. Um, the, the, the next stage about trying to go from being a journalist, a reporter, a writer, mm. uh, serving magazines and newspapers and turning around and, uh, and writing fiction for a publisher was a, a massive cultural change. Yes. Uh, and about the, you know, it really, I didn't go to any writer's, courses I didn't have any mentors or teachers I just mm. I just wrote these four sample chapters that a publisher liked you know mm. Louise, Louise Thurtell at Allen and Unwin Arena she just liked these chapters and wrote me a contract and said finish this book <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah and so it was a huge learning curve I wrote that first book Golden Serpent in around eight weeks uh, what? <laughs> yeah, that's what people say, and uh, I'm not meant to go around repeating that or just give people the wrong idea. But I'm, I'm what's known as a fast writer. I, you know, once I get set on something, I can do two chapters a day and just, you know, really go for it. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I'm. But that's that's not that's not by way of boasting. That's just how I write. Mm-hmm. I can't. The idea of writing a book for two years and lovingly crafting a manuscript, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it that way. So, um, so yeah, it was uh, transitioning from journalism and, and ghostwriting business books for people to suddenly writing fiction um, was, uh, was a huge change, but um, one I'm really glad I made myself do. It was... Um, yeah. It's, it's been very rewarding in, in many different ways. So if Golden Serpent took eight weeks, have your other books since also taken a similar length of time? Uh, well, they, they could have if I'd wanted them to. Right. Uh, no, I'm, I'm now, that's kind of pushed out. It's more like about 12 weeks. Right. Now I sort of, um, on, on the first novel I was so... Well, I was, so, oh, I, was, I, was, I was keen. I was freaked out. This, this thing that I'd always wanted to do to write commercial thriller books, novels, was, yeah. was suddenly thrown on my lap, and mm. I, um, 
it so happened that they wanted to, to have the book in time for a certain release. So I had to have it done before that Christmas. I think it was uh, 2007. Mm. Can't remember. 2006, 2007. And, um, and I had a, a, a ghost writing assignment to finish before that. So I couldn't even think about it. I had to, had to race through finishing the, the business book. Mm. And then I had one day off where I went and I, I think I, I lay on the beach down at Coogee. <laughs> For a day, just thinking, how how am I going to get through this? <laughs> and the next day, I went and sat down and um, completed Golden Serpent in in in, in very fast time. So, so um, pre- presumably, that's in first draft. Uh, you you know, it took eight weeks to get to first draft. Is there a great deal of editing and revision after that? Oh yeah, yeah, there is, and I I kind of like that. Mm. Um, Probably because of my journalism background and and the fact mm. I've been an editor and mm. uh, and what have you, so I've seen it from both sides. I'm quite relaxed with the idea of of manuscript coming back to me with notes and with edits mm. and with um, queries about you know do we really need this chapter? Yeah, for instance, and uh, <laughs> you know on, on that first. On that first manuscript that came back, we chopped out an entire chapter, mm. and a, a, you know, a manuscript that I'd sent off with 150,000 words got whittled down to 134. Right. So it lost it. It had a haircut of 16,000 words somewhere mm. along the. But but I was fine with that because that process actually makes it a better a better read, which is what it's all about. And I sort of I always sort of uh, you know smile wryly. When when other authors tell me about their great ego battles <laughs> with publishers about how they're not going to change this and they're not going mm. to change that, and uh, I just see it as a chance to make it better for the reader, really. Mm. So obviously, with um, these books, you go to exotic locations and you you write about um, other places that you, you're not necessarily living in or not necess- yeah. necessarily familiar with. Yeah. So, how do you work all of that in and get it to be credible? Do you do a lot of research, or how how does that work for you? I do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, each each book, and I'm I'm looking at the stack of of files at the moment. Actually, they're just Manila. File folders, and they're just filled with uh, notes, um, little interviews I've done with people. Uh, I ring up government departments a lot, right? And just say, just ask them things. I just say, well, you know, if I was going to do this, what would I need? Mm. Uh, if I was going to get into this building, and so all of these tiny details that that people like about my books. Um, just come from me actually finding out, you know, what mm. it takes what it takes to get into the the RG Casey building in in Canberra, or mm. you know what you need to get onto a, an Australian Army base in Darwin, or you know just just you know small bits and pieces and details. I, I collect a lot of research. Mm. I also talk to a lot of people. I think that having a journalism background mm. uh, has really served me well. It's made me, you know. If you do, if you're a journalist for more than ten years, you become a professional listener. You know, mm. you you really learn just to sit back and let somebody else tell you the story. And you know, I've found over the years that people uh, from surprising surprising uh, avenues, people have uh, 
revealed that they've had something to do with this or something to do with that, and mm. I just sit and listen and try to work out how how some of the how the sort of demimond to this subworld, especially around Southeast Asia, how it actually works, mm. and uh, and what some of the issues are to deal with it when you you know when you're an Anglo-Saxon from from Australia. Mm. How do you fit into that world? And how do you get what you want without being killed? The research process is almost like a license to be able to find out any information that you want, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, it's great. And it is great. And, um, you know, you find that a lot of people just shut you down immediately. I, right. I wrote, you know, my, well, my second, my second novel was called Second Strike and it was a fictionalised account of what, may have been behind the Bali bombings. Mm. Um, and I was trying desperately to get the final report that the Australian Federal Police had worked on with the Indonesian National Police, um, only to be told that I couldn't see it. Right. So, you know, things like that. Uh, you you just have to roll with that and... Um, uh, you just have to, you just have to decide, uh, decide. Well, just because somebody's not going to uh, cooperate with me on that level, doesn't mean I'm not going to write this book. You just mm. have to find another way to do it. And mm. um, so, you know, research can't be everything. It's not like you're writing a, mm. a, it's not like you're writing a white paper for a government department or something. Mm. It doesn't. <laughs> you, you you have to have a break point where you say, okay, well, that that avenue won't allow me. Uh, the act, you know, all of the facts. So I will charge on anyway and uh, alter my plot slightly. And on the flip side of that, have you found sometimes people to be surprisingly candid about things? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, you know, for instance, for instance, special forces soldiers, mm. uh, Aussie special forces guys, you know, the SAS or the the four R commandos. Mm. Uh, they're very, very cagey, and they're very careful about who they talk to. Um, but if the, if you can get them talking, uh, they're very interesting. And a lot of um, a lot of the sort of little humorous episodes, little humorous asides that happen amidst the action in my books, um, are taken are taken from some of these soldiers' stories. You know, mm. the, the sort of thing that happens in the field. When everyone's totally stressed and you know tired and and in a lot of danger and are, are really a bit over it, uh, the kind of little pranks they play on each other mm. um, are, the, are the really interesting bits to me. But <laughs> um, yeah, I have been surprised how frank some people have been with me. Sure. And you say you've been, you know, since the age of nine, reading yeah. these sorts of books, and now you're writing them. What's the appeal? What's the thing that you that you love about it? That's a really good question, and uh, you know, it's it's not the first time it's been asked, and it's pretty hard to put it put it uh, into words. What what I do know is that. Uh, up until that age, I had a I had a high, according to my mother, that is, I had a high reading age, but I didn't like to read. Mm. So all of the books back then, for me, with you know, people were reading things like The Hobbit, mm. or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm, mm. or Swallows and Amazons, and <laughs> you know, all of this sort of thing. Uh, I didn't really become a reader until 
uh, as I say, in, in the same year, I discovered Ian Fleming and Jules mm. Verne. So, mm. uh, you know, if you put Ian Fleming and Jules Verne together and you ask, well, what do you see in that kind of material? Uh, excitement, mm. adventure, um, uh, character, I suppose, character being put to the test. Mm. Can somebody can somebody remain uh, remain an intelligent problem solver under enormous stress? And the greatest stress that any of us will ever face is the the threat of being killed imminently. Mm. You know, mm. uh, the threat of a violent death is guaranteed to raise your heartbeat. Um, <laughs> how how do people react under that? What do they do? Um, do they go to water or do they stand up or do they become more cunning or, you know? Mm. And I guess that's what has always appealed to me from the very first, you know, uh, as I said, when I read Dr. No. Mm. And uh, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, there is, uh, there is a writer out there who knows exactly what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you read those sorts of life-threatening situations or adrenaline-filled situations, your heart does go faster and you do get into it. But writing is a much slower process. What's it feel like writing those sorts of scenes and passages? Uh, Well, it should fill you full of adrenaline. As well? Yeah, you should get a bit short of breath. You should be trying to write faster. Mm. Your fingertips should be getting sore. Um. You know, it uh, it should be if you've got the right pace. Mm. I think uh, you know when I when I look at when I look at um, uh, say thriller or suspense suspense writing, which which isn't quite getting me in, it's usually because the pacing's wrong, mm. or um, yeah, it's, it's usually the pacing. So I just you know if I'm writing. If I'm writing a scene that's that's coming to some critical point and there's bullets flying everywhere, or you know, mm. you know, my hero's about to die, or his mm. friend's about to get shot, or something, mm. I just um, I just go right into that scene and just I write as if I'm there. And so you kind of know in yourself whether you've you get you're on the right track because you feel it internally. Yeah, I think so. That's that's how it works for me. Um, and it's the same. You know, it's the same for some of the slower, slower scenes where my hero is dealing with his wife, or mm-hmm. um, you know, or he's worried about his kids or something. You know, if if I'm not feeling that as well while while I'm writing it, mm. then I'm probably not doing a very good job. And I'll I'll sort of I'll go away and have lunch and come back to it, or I'll mm. scrap it and start again, or I'll walk around in circles for 20 minutes and just really think what I'm trying to say Mm. and whether it's worth saying, actually. Uh, Tell us a bit more about Counter-Attack, your latest book. Well, Counter-Attack sees sees, uh, Alan McQueen, who is our... Mm. He works for Aussie SIS, uh, which is our offshore spy service. And he's sort of been semi-retired... Uh, but as happens in, in all of the spy agencies, they they let people semi-retire, but then they sort of lure them back with contractor work or, uh, you know, you never really retire from these places. 
And so we see Alan McQueen turning, turning 40. Uh, he, he's lured, he's, he's asked to run what he thinks is a simple job in Singapore. Um, really turning, they found a spy in Brisbane. They lure him to Singapore to try to turn him, but then there's an assassination, a very sudden and brutal one. So he comes, so he comes back to Australia. And he's wondering how he ever got lured back into this world. He thinks he's lost it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his next assignment is basically to go and find out whether somebody at, in, in the Saigon consulate in Aussie is what he's up to. He's mm-hmm. wandering around. So he goes up into Vietnam and discovers a whole lot of really unpalatable connections to what was initially just meant to be a reporting on somebody. Mm. Uh, and it explodes. Uh, it spirals out of control, basically. Uh, Alan McQueen, he, he is accused of things by his own side. He, uh, he is chased around by uh, bad guys uh, who are retired rogue Mossad people. Uh, and uh, essentially he has to resolve uh, he has to resolve what is going on, which is essentially, a bunch of uh, a bunch of um, right-wing generals from the Chinese army mm. a- attempting to take control of the North Korean missile tests mm. for nefarious purposes. So it's uh, <laughs> as with most of my Alan McQueen books, mm. with all of them, it he usually starts with something fairly routine, mm. um, but he's 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 nosy and he's curious. And his character is he doesn't let anything go, so he just keeps poking away until suddenly he realizes he's dealing with a huge conspiracy, and usually there are people on his own side who have got different agendas uh they try to usually try to recall him um and so he has to fight against them as well as the genuine bad guys so do you travel? much to Southeast Asia to check out your settings? Um, yeah, not, 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 not for a while, not, not, for, not, for, not for a few years. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the best compliments I've ever had, really, because I've, I've got my own website and so I get my, my so-called fan mail comes direct mm. uh, from that website and, you know, Virtually unanimously, the people say you really captured Asia. You know, mm, you really, mm. which is always uh, nice to hear. I mean, I, I kind of enjoy, I kind of enjoy building a, a sort of uh, ongoing sense of humour mm. uh, about the the cultural misunderstandings that happen mm. when, when Anglo-Saxons. Uh, go into Southeast Asia, and it's not not on a nasty level. Mm-hmm. Just the, the, the slightly different ways that language goes, the right. slightly different um, customs for all sorts of things. You know, for for instance, the simplest one of how um, when when faced with disappointing somebody, your average Indonesian will just nod and say yes. Mm. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, it's not it's not because they're being sneaky. It's no. just it's just a, a cultural thing. And I had a lot of fun with doing that in counter attack, just sort of, um, you know, talking about how uh, an Anglo Aussie gets along in in Saigon, where mm. 
you know, there's, it's, it's a very aggressive trading culture and, you know, you basically even, you know, when, when buying the simplest thing at the markets, you have to bargain and, uh, you know, <laughs> these sorts of things. So, um, you know, I like, I, I kind of enjoy uh, putting putting those two cultures together and mm. and having a a, 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 a a sort of cultural levity that goes along with the um, with the, the, the action and the violence. Mm-mm. And you have to get that right, or people can spot that a mile away. <laughs> well, yeah, mm. um, you know, for my for the latest one with counterattack, I I actually got on the phone to uh, to a couple of people, uh, one of which was. Uh, was uh, one of the um, one of the Vietnamese uh, cultural people at SBS, for instance, and mm-hmm. you know I just ring up and so um, <laughs> just you know just remind me because you know it's been a while since I was in Vietnam, so just get reminders on the language and uh, the customs and you know and people are actually always. Uh, sort of pleasantly surprised to be asked these things and uh, are more than helpful. So, Mm. you know, it's... uh, So tell us, when you're in your eight-week or 12-week marathon, tell us about your daily writing routine. Do you have a system or a ritual or you've got to start your way in a certain day or how does it work for you? Uh, How it usually works is I would usually... um, I'd usually wake up at about quarter to seven. Um, I might go for a walk or I might not. Um, just make some, uh, have a shower and make some quick breakfast and really, aim, you know, do do emailing and make all the administrivia calls mm. and try to be, try to be hitting the first keystroke at nine on the dot. So I, I'm... I'm not a sort of uh, a haphazard writer. Mm. I like to make it my work. I like to um, I like to, to to cut it down into shifts mm. for me, which usually my shift usually goes nine till twelve, mm. and then uh, one till four, mm-hmm. and then I will do I will write anywhere between say. Two hours and four hours uh, after a meal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can sometimes I might write through to midnight. Wow. And other times I'll write through to ten. So I'll usually do you know three shifts in a day, mm. and each each of them lasts around three hours. That's full on. Well, yeah, and it works differently to a lot of people. Mm. Um, you know, I've uh, I've found myself having to. You know, being asked for advice on these things, you know, when people want to write and what have you, and and I just usually say that, usually tell them that, you know, uh, you know, the, the the sitting around waiting for inspiration style, mm. it doesn't work for me. No, and as a journalist, uh, I think that you've never really had that luxury. You say you're not well, used it, to yeah. it. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, if you've if your background to writing novels. Mm. is 20 years of journalism. Mm. If that's where you start from, then you already see yourself as a professional. Mm. You already see what you do as in the same way that a that a lawyer or a doctor or a 
psychologist or whatever mm. would see themselves and that is somebody who has a skill mm. to, to sell and you've got to get organized and you have to you know uh, you have to decide whether you're doing it for real or mm. whether this is just part-time I mean a lot of people a lot of people who write novels they hold down a full-time job uh, you know what in, in our world we call it the day job mm. they'll hold down the day job and then, then they come home and they um, they have something to eat, and then they write for two or three hours. Mm. Uh, and that's what, that, and that's when it does take a year or two to mm. get a manuscript out. Mm. Anyone who can do it that way, best of luck to them. Mm. I, mean, I think that's I think that's an, an incredible effort to keep commitment. your focus. Yeah, commitment mm. and focus to keep to keep it going that long. But I see myself more as a professional, mm. and so. I uh, I divide it down. Uh, I've and you know I have I have the added confidence of knowing I can write a novel in eight weeks, mm. which um, not everyone has that mm. feels that they can do it. And I wouldn't recommend it for everybody either. <laughs> by the way, it um, you know you you can you can really spin yourself out. You can mm. get uh, you know what I would say mentally exhausted rather than physically exhausted and. Mm. Um, it's not the best way. That's why I take longer these days. But if it comes down to it, I know I can do it. So, uh, so yeah, I have a routine, usually three shifts a day. And when I'm writing, I don't listen to music. Mm. And I don't take phone calls. And I don't, I don't have my, I don't have my sort of, you know, iChat or, mm. or Twitter going in the background and, you know, everything is just mm. focused on that one page. I don't even check the internet unless wow. I'm doing unless I'm doing basic research for the thing. So yeah, so that's how I do it. And on that I heard, now is this true, <laughs> that you don't have a TV? I don't have a TV. Well I, I haven't had a TV until about ten weeks ago. Oh and then you got one. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it doesn't have cable on it or anything and right. um I was so long without a TV that I don't I don't really watch it unless you know, the only thing I've ever watched on TV is either um, is really is is news or movies. Right. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I'll watch um, I'll watch um, the news at six thirty or whatever, seven mm. o'clock, and if there's a movie on, I'll watch it. Like City Slickers was on the other night. That's an old movie. <laughs> Well, it was on TV, so I just okay, okay, I'll watch this. So you know, um, but yeah, I. Uh, yeah, until till about ten weeks ago, I didn't have one. So, so what's yeah. next for you? Are you already working on your next project? Yeah, well, what happens for for me is that um, I have I have created another hero. Oh. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, let's take one step back. I uh, once it turned out that Golden Serpent was a popular. Mm and the publishers liked it and the readers liked it. Alan and Unwin essentially gave me a six-book deal, mm-hmm. so of which Golden Serpent was the first. So I have... have I, and I've just recently... Counter-Attack was number four. Mm-hmm. And for number five, I decided to create a new character uh, who would not be a spy but a, but a former soldier. Mm-hmm. And he would, wouldn't be Australian, he'd be American. So yeah, no, this this doesn't mean that Alan McQueen is over. Okay. <laughs> it just this <clears throat> this will be in parallel. Right. Um, and so that book 
is coming out, I think, July or August, <clears throat> but it will be coming out under another name of Mark Aitken. Right. So, uh, and so that all... people don't get confused or...? Well, yeah. I mean, if you've got... Um, if people get used, you know, if, if, if my first four novels were, you know, Alan McQueen... Right, they'll buy it and if they don't get Alan, they'll... Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So from a, uh, from a retailing and marketing perspective, mm. that, 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 that's how it's going to go. So, so I've just finished a book called Arctic Floor mm-hmm. and uh, it's got a different hero, mm. a similar writing style. It's, uh, you know, um, high-octane... Probably even more action than the Alan McQueen book. And how is his the, the protagonist going to be very different to Alan? And and is he going to have a different sort of part of the world that he specialises in? Or ha- yes. what are the differences? Well, uh, you see, the uh, whenever I've lived in North America, it's been in the sort of uh, rural redneck belts. Right. Uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago, I spent some time in Colorado, and just recently, I've been spending a lot of time in Ontario, in Canada. Mm. So, my uh, so I've created a character who comes from those sorts of areas, mm. uh, who's a retired soldier, but as you know, a lot of these special forces people, they come back to normal life. They can't really earn much of a living, mm. but there's a lot of um, private contract work, mm. you know, what used to be called mercenary. Mm. But, um, and so they go back. So I've just got a character who gets, who, who, who thinks he's retiring back to his dad's farm, but gets lured out for, you know, to head, head up teams doing certain things. Mm. And they always uh, end up being way, way more complicated mm. than he thought. Mm. So it's, um, it's a similar character, except you know, American and younger than Alan McQueen, and mm. uh, but you know, a similar thrills and spills sort of approach to writing. I would say, at the pace you write, you could be you know um, writing multiple books per year under multiple names. <laughs> yes, I could, and that's why I'm a ghostwriter. So. Yeah. I write. So that is the that is the plan. That is what you do. That's what I do. Mm. Um, I, you know, I probably every year I have a ghostwriting assignment going on uh, mm. uh, to ghostwrite a book. And Tell I've us about that, in because like when you're ghostwriting for under someone else's name or for someone else or with yeah. someone else, you really need to capture their story and almost their voice. So how do you do that? As in, not obviously the information, but but their their feeling. You have to be a professional listener, mm. and I, you know, I have, you know, some of some of the manuscripts people have shown me in the past that they want me to have a look at and what have you, mm. or pieces of writing. Usually, you can tell that they they have something of a tin ear. Mm. You know, you. I think that if you if you're going to write anything, you have to train yourself to be a listener, mm. rather than constantly telling everybody you're a writer. Um, mm. You know, and you yeah, you really do. You have to be, uh, and and that comes into its own if you're a journalist, and mm. it certainly is crucial if you're going to ghostwrite because as as you've just 
so rightly said, it's not just about getting the information, mm. but it's getting the voice and the feel out of it. So um, I thought I'd turn that off. Um, the voice and the feel out of it so that it reads um, like as if the person has written it themselves. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's only one way you can do that, and that is to, to sit down in front of somebody and just really, really listen and really um, tune in to what they're talking about. In terms of your ghostwriting projects, do people come to you or do you go after them in terms of the things that you want to ghostwrite? How, how does that work for you? They come after me. Mm-hmm. So whether it comes through um, my existing publishers or whether it comes through you know, a publisher who heard about me through another publisher mm. uh, or whether it comes directly from the person who wants to do who wants to get a project done, but they can't really write it themselves. But, you know, sometimes what happens is a a high-profile person will be approached by a publisher. Mm. And the publisher will say, well, you know, here is the the contract and here is the the lump of money we're going to wave in front of you. Mm. Um, But can you do this themselves? And the person probably will say yes, but they know they can't. (laughs) And so they come looking for someone like me who will basically be introduced to the publishers and make mm. everyone feel comfortable mm. and, you know. Um, so presumably you don't say yes to all the ghostwriting projects you're approached with. What do you like ghostwriting? What sorts of things do you like ghostwriting? I like ghostwriting anything where I get to get an insight into and understand somebody else's world and someone else's profession. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I can't just I can't just go and rattle them off to you. But some of mm. the people who I've ghostwritten um, are very interesting, very powerful, very successful, very wealthy people. Mm. And getting to spend extended hours with these people and getting uh, an insight into how a whole other slice of life works and you know how people behave and you know how you know people the kind of people you read about in the newspapers. Mm and you're suddenly being told a story about how they behave in private, and, it's, you know, and your, jaw, your jaw is dropping. Yes. You're going, really? <laughs> it's, so I, I like that. I like um, anything where I get to learn. Do you sort of um, interview them first and get all of the information and then start crafting and structuring, or do you go, do it as you go along? Um. It it, uh, it depends on what the project is. Right. Um, the last one I did, uh, the commitment I made with the person I was ghostwriting for was, you know what, you know, we had a very short time frame. I'd, I'd been given basically, I think, about eight or nine weeks to turn it around. That's do mm. the interviews and write the manuscript. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, that, yeah, once again, you under... Mm. And, and I think what I said to the person is, look, usually I'd do a chapter plan mm. for this, but in this case, because we're talking about a certain thing that I'm ghostwriting, mm. I'm going to go away and I'm going to do my basic research for a day or two, mm. just read everything I can find on the internet about it. Mm. And then on this day, we'll sit down and we'll do a two-hour interview and we'll do that, that twice a week for seven weeks. Right. And I'll write it as I go. And so that's mm. what we did. And in the end, the publishers decided 
they didn't want me as the ghost that they were going to put my name on the book. So oh, right. that was called The Fast Life and Sudden Death of Michael McGurk. Right, yes. Which I wrote with uh, Richie Verica. Mm. And uh, and that's how that started. We we mm. had a, a, t- a short time frame to turn it around, so we just committed to two meetings a week. And I was writing and you know showing him pages and what have you. But other but other ones, uh, yeah, I'll get the information first. I'll do a chapter plan. We'll plan it out, and I'll basically work to filling up that chapter plan, and it, it works in a slightly different way. And when you are ghostwriting somebody's life or their experience in a particular part of their life, um, have you done that for women or or mainly men or? Both? I've done I've done one I've done one uh, project for a woman, mm-hmm. and the publisher pulled the plug on it when when we were only about a month into the project. Right. And that's because the woman in question uh, moved on from the job she was at. Right. Um, which sort of removed her credential for writing yeah. the book in the first place, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So, so but yeah. in that month, did you find it different? Because, you know, it is well, a different yeah. energy. It's a different voice kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think that's the, the, I think that's the trick of just making yourself be a good listener. Mm-hmm. Because if you make yourself be a good listener, then it doesn't matter what gender somebody is or mm-hmm. what, what culture they're from or mm-hmm. how rich they are. You, you, write the, you write the story out of their own heart, out of their own voice. Mm-hmm. You, just, you sort of disembody yourself from the process almost. You, just, mm-hmm. you become a, um, a channel. But I mean, you know, the, I don't have... I don't have a lot of sort of culture shock with females because mm. you know, I grew up in a house of three sisters and <laughs> I've got a twin sister and, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, women aren't that much sort of alien to me anyway, really. <laughs> <laughs> and now back to Counterattack and Alan McQueen. Now, a lot of that inspiration, as you said, started from when you were nine years old reading Dr. No. And these days, you're actually being compared to the likes of Ian Fleming and Tom Clancy. How does that feel? Well, that was pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> Graham, Graham Blundell, who, who is the crime and thriller um, writer or editor for the Weekend Australian, he, he wrote that. Mm. And... Uh, when I first saw it, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, wow, you know, he's kind of, um, he's uh, un- unknowingly uh, hit on some on some real soft spots for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, so to be to be to be said that I sort of write like a like an Aussie Ian Fleming was very. Um, and as it happened, that the publishers uh, want uh, pulled that quote out uh, for use on subsequent books as well. Uh, so. It's, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I suppose everybody has, can think of an author who turned them into a reader, really. Um, you know, who, who, took, who took reading from being a chore that their mother made them do to something that they really wanted to do. So, and for me, that was, uh, that would have been Ian Fleming and Jules Verne. Um, but, you know, in, in particular, Ian Fleming, because of the genre he was writing in. 
And finally, what would your advice be to people who are listening to this and they've got that rollicking book in them or they've got that, that you know, deep desire to be an author? What would your advice be to them? Okay. Advice. Mm. Um, I think I've probably let a, few, let a few of them slip as we've been going. Yes. Um, I think the, the, the first thing I would, I would say is that you... Uh, is that you have to make make a commitment to what you're doing. You have to decide that this is it, and that um, and that, that this is the mission, and you're going to do it. So you have to make a personal commitment inside yourself. Secondly, in terms of actually getting the project done, I would always advocate that you that you divide the you subdivide the project down into smaller parts that are completed. You have to you have to get a, you have to train yourself to know that you're going to finish it. So even if you do what I do, uh, and when I get going, I measure my progress by chapters, mm. and I don't start a chapter unless I'm going to finish it. Uh, and that's mm. just a personal discipline for me. So if I start my first keystroke at nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, I told you that that you know I told you that that last shift of the day could be one or two hours, or it could be four hours, mm. and that really depends. You know, am I going to finish this chapter? Right. So that would be my advice to people: is is to train yourself to complete something. Mm. And chapters are a really good thing to complete. Most people can do one, uh, even if you even if you're writing the book after work. Set yourself the goal of I finish a chapter each week, mm. and actually finish it. Don't leave it dangling. Don't say I'll come back to it because you know. Don't think. Don't have that kind of bureaucratic idea that someone else will do it. <laughs> because when you're a writer, only one person can do it, mm. and that's you. I would also, I would also advise to only ever write what you would want to read yourself. Mm. Um, a lot of. Uh, a lot of manuscripts by first time as they get um, they get sort of mired they get mired in, in in a sense of how important they might be if you get what I mean um, you know it's true it's a lot of first timers do it they think well I'm a writer now so I have to be sort of really learned and yes. and clever about everything whereas that's not always that interesting to someone who's reading it. Mm. That's an ego trip for the writer. So you, you just got to switch yourself around a bit. And sometimes, if a if a paragraph's not working, just look at it with fresh eyes and say, "Would I actually want to read this? Would I find this entertaining?" Mm. And if the answer is no, then go back and do it again. And uh, you know, and on that last point, mm. the ultimate piece of advice that I was ever given was that um, you know, amateurs write, but professionals rewrite. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the biggest that's the biggest thing of all the you know when you see those beautifully crafted um, chapters by someone like an Ian McEwan or you know mm. one of these or, or an Annie Prue mm. when you see that beautifully you know to just just understand that from, from the professionals side of it that those are those are um, those are chapters that have been gone over and over mm. again they've been rewritten which is what the good pros do and uh, so if you if you are a first timer and you want to get into it, um, yeah, make a make a commitment to complete the project, but make sure that uh, you that completion means you've you've rewritten the thing over and over till you think it's really good. Mm. 
And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. Okay, thanks, Valerie. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.